Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge. It's so wonderful to see you here. Thank you so much for coming. For all of you in Plymouth, great to have you here. For those of you at our regional campuses, thanks so much for being a part of Northridge Church. And from everybody here at our broadcast campus, it's great to have you at Brighton and Celine live streaming right now. So glad you're there and guests welcome. And for those of you at Plymouth, just want you to be aware, I was watching out my office window and uh, the traffic lines were out there again and all that. And it's exciting to know that many people are coming to church, which is an exciting deal, which I love about this place. But for those of you who are guests, our regular attenders know this, for those of you who are guests, um, we have two other services here in Plymouth, and we do it so that, you know, there can be freer seats and maybe less traffic for you. If 11, 16 is the only time that you can come and invite your friends, please keep coming then. But there's the 516 on Saturday night and 916 on Sunday morning here in Plymouth, and always looking uh, for ways to open up seats for you to keep inviting your friends. So whatever you do, keep inviting. We're, we're starting a, a series called Gym, and I love it that this series is on the heels of our Easter celebration because this book has everything to do with what happens in the way we live after experiencing the hope of the resurrection, and you'll see that as we go through this talk. But we wanted to start it after Easter because last weekend, and this is going to blow your mind, last weekend for Easter services, we had 30,000 people here. Isn't that amazing? 30,000. And that's because you believe in what Jesus has done in your life, and you're inviting people in, and I hope that you'll keep doing that. But there's no perfect place to begin with all of those who attended Easter than with the book of James. And because we're always about making God's truth understandable here in the 21st century, we know we wouldn't call James James. We would call James Jim. Jim. That's exactly right. Jim. How awesome is that? Uh, but anyway, Jesus once famously said during his teaching that it's by their fruit we will recognize them. And by their fruit, he means by by the conduct of their lives, by the behavioral patterns of their lives, we will recognize them, who they really are. It's by the conduct of their lives that we'll recognize the content of their heart because from the motives of the heart, we ultimately act out. And so Jesus told us this because he wanted us to know that we can't believe everything everyone says. Just because someone says they're a Christ follower doesn't mean they are. Just because someone says that they've been transformed by him doesn't mean they have. And so he says, it's by the conduct of their lives we'll recognize the content of their heart. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. This doesn't mean that it's through our work and behavior that we discover the grace of Jesus. That's not true. It's his work that saves us. But it means that when he truly transforms who we are on the inside, it will be clearly reflected on who we are on the outside. And that's what this book of James focuses on. It focuses on the, the conduct of our lives as we begin following Jesus. It, it gives us wisdom for how Christ followers should live in this very real world. And with that as context, look at how James kicks off his letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant it means slave. 
a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings, to all those people of God, whether they've yet followed Jesus or not, who've been scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution and other reasons, I'm writing this book of truth to you, greetings. Now the real question, and I believe if we're going to get the most from this letter, is to figure out who this James is. I mean, if you've ever gotten a letter from someone you didn't know, you've probably called that junk mail, right? So it's always good to know the person who's writing you because it can have a greater impact. It can have greater meaning for you. Well, the same is true with the Bible. Who is this James? Well, the easy place to start is with the four that are mentioned in the New Testament, very unlikely some stranger from the New Testament kind of wrote in the New Testament. And there are four Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. There's the James... Jim, right? There's Jim, the son of Zebedee. But if he's going by Jim, there's no way we call him the son of Zebedee, right? It's Jim, son of Zeb or Zeb, right? And, and he was John's brother. John's the one who wrote the Gospel of John. And James and John were called by Jesus on the, sea sh the shore of the Sea of Galilee to follow Jesus. They, they were a part of the 12. So James, the son of Zebedee, was one of the 12. That's a possibility. And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, Jim. And you need to know, there was actually a show in the 80s about this guy, Alf. Did you ever watch that show? Um, and so Jim, the son of Alf, he too was one of t the 12 original followers of Jesus Christ called to follow Jesus. And then there was another James, and, and he's called the father of Judas. And it's not Judas Iscariot. Uh, Iscariot kind of defines who that Judas was, the great betrayer. But, but this Judas is defined by who his father was. And his father's name was James. So James, the father of Judas. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he was the father of one of the twelve. And gets mentioned. And then there was James, the brother of Jesus. Clearly revealed in scripture. James, the brother of Jesus. And you need to know it's James, the brother of Jesus, who is the accepted author of this book. And I'll look a little bit more into him in a minute, but he's our Jim. So we've named this series Jim after James, the brother of Jesus. And since we're going to be spending so much time with him, I, I thought it would be good for us to get to know him a little. And, and because we all come from a variety of different backgrounds, many unchurched and some from religious backgrounds, many of us have misunderstanding about Jesus and his family. And it might even surprise you that Jesus had a brother, a real brother, named James. And that highlights one of the things you need to know. James was the biological son of Mary and Joseph. Now, everybody knows Mary is the Virgin Mary, and that's true. She was the virgin who then the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in and gave birth to this one who's the Son of God. But she was engaged to a guy named Joseph, and following the birth, the virgin birth of Jesus, she married Joseph, and they became a normal married couple, doing what normal married couples did, and they established a normal family, a biological family. And this isn't me making this stuff up for sensationalism. This is the Bible that so often religion ignores. Look at Matthew 13, 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? They were talking about Jesus trying to figure out how he could be such a great prophet. I mean, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, Joseph's son? And isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Whoa! Jesus had 
half-brothers fathered by Joseph, though he had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And what you need to know about James and the other brothers of Jesus is that they didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah during his life. I mean, they didn't, I mean, they were his brothers. He grew up in the same home, played in the same sandbox, you know, cleaned up after the same donkey, stuff like that. I mean, they didn't believe that their brother was Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of the world. And, and the Bible says it. Look at John 7, 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. I mean, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe that his teaching was from God this way. They, they, they knew him as the guy that grew up in his household. And by the way, doesn't that make sense? I mean, if your sibling started claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, would you buy in? Now, my brothers have no problem believing that about me. <laughs> Not. I mean, come on, we know each other from the inside out. And, and, but you might be going, yeah, but he was perfect. They should have known, and he was different. Yeah, look at The more perfect the sibling, the more likely we are to hate them. I had two older brothers, and both of them, I, I used to call them Messiah 1 and Messiah 2. I mean, they were the good guys. The only way I could make a name for myself was becoming the Antichrist, and that's what I did. I was the odd one out, but they were the good guys, and the more perfect they were, the more I despised them. And can you imagine being the sibling of Jesus? The Bible tells us he was perfect. He never sinned. I would hate that. Can you imagine Mary? She always had ammunition. James, Jesus would never do that. I mean, so they just didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And this is important because many of us have had a hard time with the idea that Jesus could be the Son of God, the creator of the world, that, that he could be a Messiah, that he could be virgin born. And I mean, that's pretty tough for us to believe. And, and, and it was tough for his own siblings to believe. And they didn't believe during his life. They discounted it just as many of us have along the way. I know I didn't believe for the longest of times. But then something forever changed him. It was the resurrection. It forever changed the direction of his life. It, it forever changed what he was willing to entertain as, as belief. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 7. It, Jesus, his brother, specifically appeared to him after the resurrection. It says, then Jesus appeared to James. Now imagine this, because James, I mean, we know Mary was at the, the cross, and Mary was at the tomb, and and, you know, more than likely, the, the brothers were too because they supported mom. And they, they saw him die. And they saw him buried. And I, I'm sure it affirmed everything they didn't believe about him. See, he couldn't be the son of God. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't be who he said he was. Look at he died. But then Jesus appeared to James straight on. And it forever changed James. You are who you said you were. You, you are the author of life. You were able to come back from the tomb. You, everything you said is true. And it forever changed him. In fact, so much so that he, James, became the key leader in the church of Jerusalem. I mean the key leader, the first church on the planet from which all other believers ultimately emanated from. And, and this church even emanates from ultimately. I mean, I mean, he became the key leader, the pastor, the bishop of the church at Jerusalem. Galatians 1.19, Paul the apostle says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. When he went to Jerusalem, he, he saw and was ministered to by and led by 
the pastor of that church, James, and he met with him and encouraged him. And in fact, we find that James, the brother of Jesus, in, is prominent in the book of Acts. And in Acts 15, when the whole world was wondering what truth was as it related to Christianity versus Judaism, he, he being at the tension point of it as the pastor of this Christian church in Jerusalem, led a council and let out the decision about what would be carried over from Judaism to Christianity. And, and he was actually leading Paul and leading Barnabas and leading Peter and all these other apostles who were the part of the original 12. He was a big deal in the church of Jesus. And so he's the logical author of this book, talking about the conduct of our behavior in our lives. And, and he's been the traditionally accepted author of this book since the early days of the church. Many of the founding fathers of Christianity mention him as the author, and so there he is. But you might be going, wow, why is this so important? Well, think about it. It adds power to the book. This book that we're about to jump into is written by a guy who grew up in the same home with Jesus Christ. That's huge. This one so devoted to Jesus grew up with him. And having three brothers of my own, I know, unless they rose from the dead, I would never show them this kind of allegiance. And so there's power in this book. John is a great example of how the resurrection, that which we celebrated last week at Easter and celebrate every day we experience the living Jesus, he's a great example of how the resurrection changes everything in our lives. It changes who we are on the inside, our character, and then how we live on the outside, our conduct. I mean, imagine the brother of Jesus so transformed that he boldly declares himself to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers almost broke my arms trying to get me to bow down to them as Lord. Didn't happen. And here a guy is saying, I'm a slave to my brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? That's how significantly the resurrection transformed him. He knew he was who he said he was. His brother did. And think about this. There were a lot of things that James could have used to get influence so that this book, this letter would be received by people around the world. He, he could have bragged, I am the brother of Jesus, the one you follow. I'm his brother. You know, isn't that what siblings often do? If they have a famous brother, they try and ride on the coattails, right? <laughs> you know who my brother is, you know? He didn't do that. He says, I'm the slave. He didn't say I'm the brother. I'm the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's amazing. He also didn't use his position, his title. I'm the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. And I, I relate to that. I, I don't want to be known as the pastor, Brad Powell pastor. I, I, you know what I want to be known as? I want to be known as Brad. I want to be known as a human being. I want the only respect I have to come because of the life I live in following Jesus. But I have to be really, really honest with you. There is one time that I... One set of circumstances where I use my position to try and get influence and try and to get leverage and to try and get something for myself. There's one time, I'm just being honest, I'm being human. Do you know when it is? It's when, it's when cops pull me over. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm telling you, cops pull me over and I go, I, I'm the pastor of Northridge Church. You know that big church that God is all over? Four churches, you know, four locations, one church, you know that thing? Do you know if you write that ticket, you're going to hell, right? You know that. <laughs> no, I, I don't say that. I just infer it. 
Um, but the thing is, that's you know, you, you, when you want to like, establish influence, you use your position to do it, right? He didn't do that. He says, there's only one thing I want you to know about me. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw that as his highest honor. He saw that as his highest privilege. And I want you to know that when you experience the transforming power of Jesus in your life, he becomes the only thing that you really want to be defined by. Transforms everything. That's what happened to James. It has the power to change everything in our lives. But James makes it clear, while it changes everything in our lives, it doesn't change the experience we have in the world. It, it changes us and how we respond to the world, but it doesn't change the world. And this is important because many people, when they start following Jesus, expect for, for the rough waters of the world to become glass smooth and they expect for all the challenges of life to to be lifted because now I'm a follower of Jesus he's going to make everything in the world that's bad go away and everything in the world's going to be good and that is not true he changes us but the world goes on being the world and the focus of this letter by James is how we're supposed to live differently in the same world and it's very relevant because he talks about the stuff that we have to face in this world, the, the stuff that makes many of you wonder if God's really there, if, if he's really real, if his promises are true. James is saying, look at it, it's still a world of trouble and temptation. It's still a world of prejudice and conflict and war. It's still a world that's falling apart and filled with darkness. But know this, what Jesus changes is you on the inside, which changes your entire response to this world and its difficulties. And so there's much in this book for us. But here's where I want to start this weekend. Here's our truth. Are you ready? Living for Jesus involves living with trouble. Living for Jesus involves living with trouble. It doesn't involve him keeping us from trouble. It doesn't involve him protecting us, putting a bubble over us so trouble never gets to us. And that's what many of us think. I've watched many people. I've been the pastor here for now 25 years plus. And I'm telling you, I've seen many people come in and they buy into the whole Jesus thing. But in their head, they're thinking, that's going to make sure that I always have employment. That's going to make sure my marriage and relationships are always good. That's going to make sure all my goals are true and all my dreams come true. I'm going to follow Jesus and he's going to make everything in the world that's bad go away and the only things I'm going to experience is good. And then you know what happens? That's not what happens because the world doesn't change at all. You know, many people who've come in and put faith in Jesus leave because they still experience trouble. Living for Jesus does not mean living without trouble. It means living with trouble in an entirely different way. If you're looking for God to be your genie in the bottle to to smooth out all the rough spots of your life, you've got another thing coming because very often, as James discovered, when you follow Jesus, the waves and the storms get bigger, not smaller. But the good news is, he so transforms who you are on the inside and so fills you with grace and his power and his wisdom that, that you can go through that trouble in an entirely different way. Living for Jesus means living with trouble. James 1, 2, he says it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trouble. And you know what he's doing? This is interesting. He's, he's simply 
repeating the truth of his brother. Look what Jesus said in John 16, In this world, you will have what? And I, I'm wanting you to get this, and I know 15 of you here at Plymouth just repeated it with me. Thank you for those 15. I, I do appreciate that. You don't know how much it warms my heart to have so many of you participating in this talk right now. But for those of you at our regionals, I know you all screamed it out. You were right there with it. But here in Plymouth, no. So we're going to do it again because I want you to know that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to experience trouble. Here's what Jesus said. In this world, you will have no. trouble. Yeah, you're going to have it. You're going to have it. Following Jesus was never presented as the easy way. How can following Jesus be an easy way if following Jesus is following the one whose life led him to be nailed to a cross and killed? Don't think so. And he said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you who follow me. It's not the easy way, but it's the only worthwhile way. It's the only way where we can live lives that truly are significant eternally. It's the only way we, we can ultimately experience God's best in our life, which is what we're all longing for. And so here's the application I, I, I want to have you hopefully weave into the fabric of your life. If we want to experience God's best, we have to learn how to live positively even in times of trouble. How to live positively even in times of trouble. Now, I, I just kind of always want to point out how that doesn't make sense naturally. Look at that. I, I know very well how to live negatively in times of trouble. Don't you? I mean, when something goes wrong, I've got all the words down that I'm supposed to say. Don't you? Come on. Hit your thumb with a hammer and you don't say, God is so good all the time and all the time. God is good. That's not what you say. You say Jesus Christ, but not in a positive way. Do you know what I'm saying? We don't naturally live positively even in times of trouble. We naturally live negatively in, in dark ways. But, but if we're going to experience God's best, we have to learn to live positively in times of trouble. That's what James says. Look at, look at how the brother of Jesus says it in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trouble, trials, of all their various kinds, because you know that the testing, the refining, the trying, the the applying fire to your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I'm going to tell you, there's a ton in those verses. But I want you to know that these aren't just words. These are the reality of James's life. This one who started out not even believing in Jesus, ultimately you need to know, in AD 62, according to the Roman historian who had no you know, religious baggage on him or anything, Josephus tells us that he was martyred for standing true to Jesus in AD 62. This is a guy who knew what trouble was because he was the pastor in a city of trouble, a city that was persecuted, that persecuted anyone who followed Jesus. He was the pastor there, and most people ran, but he stayed. He knew what persecution and trouble was like, and, and he ultimately died for staying true to Jesus. And so what he says here about trouble is important for us to get. He was faithful to the end. If we're going to learn, like James, to live positively even in times of trouble, there are some things that we need to understand. And here's the first. We, we need to understand the inescapable reality of trouble. Trouble is a reality we can't escape from. In, in fact, I, I just it says whenever 
we experience trials. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. So here's, I just want to share a couple of things so that you really get the breadth of this. It's not optional whether you experience trouble or not. It's not optional. It's also not convenient or predictable. It's predictable that you will experience trouble. It's not predictable when. In fact, one of the things that makes trouble so troubling is that it's unpredictable. If you knew you were going to get a flat at 3 in the morning on a highway going to nowhere, you wouldn't be driving there. It's unpredictable and it's inconvenient. It makes it trouble. And then it comes in all sizes and shapes, all shapes and sizes. I mean, it does. Uh, James says various kinds, you know, diverse kinds of trouble. You're going to experience trouble. The question is, will you experience it as James did with the power of Jesus or will you experience it in a way that destroys you? The second thing, if we're going to live positive lives even in the midst of trouble, then we need to, James tells us, understand the positive results of trouble. And I know this isn't what we naturally think. When, when we're experiencing trouble, what are we thinking about? The trouble. But, but there are positives that can result from trouble if we respond the right way. This is a big deal. James tells us what these are. I mean, we already read them. First of all, did you know that Going through trouble in a positive way can increase your faith. Did you know that? It can increase your faith. And you know, faith is vital. I mean, if we're going to believe his promises, we need faith. If we're going to believe his promises more, we need more faith, right? And so trouble can increase our faith. In fact, James says, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And here's what he's saying. When your faith is tested, it gets stronger. It's more capable of holding up to the pressure of the times it can endure. Peter said the same thing. In fact, in 1 Peter 1.7, it's the only time that same word for putting fire to us, the test is, is used. It's the same word. Peter says, the trouble you're experiencing has come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How? when it's refined by the fire. The, the, the trial, the trouble, kind of puts a fire test to it, and so it increases our faith. There's another positive that James tells us can come from trouble. It can build our character. And really, isn't an incomplete character one of our biggest problems? I, 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 I mean, I have the will to do all the right things. I mean, I have the desire to do the right things. Don't you? I have the desire. Oh, I want to. I never, ever want to treat another human being, especially my wife, in the wrong way. I mean, I said it on our honeymoon. I looked at my wife. We're driving, you know, away from our wedding, and I said, sweetie, I love you so much. I never want to hurt you. By the way, can I tell you, that is one sentence you should never share with a wife, honeymoon, or 50th anniversary. That's never something you should share. Because they're going to hold you to that crap. <laughs> I thought you said you never wanted to hurt me. And all I can do is say, I never do want to hurt you. My character's just so flawed, I can't help myself. But Jesus tells us through James, his brother, that, that trouble can help build our character. He says it can make you mature and complete. It can develop the interior man. I want my interior man to be stronger, don't you? So it can be one of the results of trouble. That James also tells us that, that trouble can multiply our usefulness. 
And who doesn't want to be useful? I mean, I do. I, I want my life to count. I want my life to make a difference. I, I, I want my life to be significant. Don't you? I've never met a person who says, you know what? I want to be a blob that's known for nothing. I want to live my whole life and no one never even know I was here. I've never met that person. If that's you, can I interview you? I mean, we want to be useful. And trouble is what can multiply our usefulness. He, he says, through trouble, you can get to the place where you're lacking nothing. You, you know what keeps us from being more useful, right? It's our deficiencies. It's our shortcomings. And, and what he's saying here is that you can com become complete, not lacking anything. You, your deficiencies and your empty spots can be filled by what God does in you when you are faithful through trouble. Multiplies your usefulness. In fact, here's what I want you to see, and here's what James is saying. When we go through trouble, it helps us to become more like Jesus. Because wasn't he the lamb without blemish? Wasn't he the lamb without fault? And isn't that why he was able to be useful in being sacrificed for all of our sins? Because his perfection could cover all of our imperfection if he took our place, of course. And do you know what makes us more useful? When we become more like him, lambs without blemish. And then he really gets positive, and he says, you know, when you go through trouble, there's another positive result. You need to realize the, the results of trouble can be positive. He says it can lead to fulfillment. It can lead to fulfillment. That's a big deal. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always looking for fulfillment. And one of the things I hate most is that sense of emptiness. Like that sense that there's got to be something more in life. Don't you hate that? It's like... I'm so empty, there's got to be something more and I keep trying to fill it with all the wrong things and it, it doesn't fill me and he says fulfillment can actually be something God does in you even as you go through trouble. Look at James 1.12 that word blessed is very, very important we're still in the first chapter of this letter from James blessed, that means content satisfied, fulfilled. He's saying fulfilled is the person who perseveres under trial, who, who stands strong during trouble because when they stand the test they receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And simply saying, if you want to find fulfillment, very often the way to fulfillment is through trouble. Do you see this? It's like, and I don't naturally look at trouble this way. First of all, I think I should be able to escape it. If I'm, if I'm a good boy today, maybe God won't let me experience trouble today. That's just not true. It's inescapable. And, and, and I usually see it through negative eyes, but I can see through positive eyes. And then, and then James tells us that if we're going to live positive lives even in trouble, then we have to understand the appropriate responses to trouble. The appropriate responses. Now, I have to tell you, I know the inappropriate responses. We've already talked about that. I know all of them. So do you. But, but we need to learn the appropriate responses. Here's what we need to understand, and I think James is really focusing in on this. Trouble will change us. You get that, right? Trouble will change us. But it won't necessarily change us for the better. In fact, quite often, trouble really makes me worse. But it's because of my response to trouble. I respond in anger. I respond in hatred. I respond in believing God doesn't love me. I respond in believing it shouldn't be this way. And, and all, it makes me worse. But if we respond properly, appropriately, James is telling us how, then it can be positive. And so what does he say? How, how should we respond to trouble? Well, look, look what he says in James 1, 2 through 3. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face all these trials. Consider it joy. What's the right response? Now, this is bizarre. 
joy is the right response. Joy. What? Not, not like, yeah, I broke my leg. I mean, that's like, you need psychiatric help if that's you. This is simply saying, I'm not going to let this destroy me because I now know God loves me and is working in me. You know, he's going to do something here. He's, he's given me the power of the resurrection to overcome and, and we can face it with joy. He tells us that we need to respond to trouble with prayer. With prayer. Look at James 1, 5 through 7. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. You should pray. You should have a conversation with God. And it's in trouble. It's like, of course we lack wisdom when we're in trouble. We lack wisdom about what we should do and how we should respond. And so he said, talk to me. And he says, God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he, he needs to have faith and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. But what's the response in times of trouble? Prayer, asking God for wisdom. That's not my natural response. Now, I don't know about you, but my natural response is kind of to lash out at God. Do you ever do this? I've given my life to you. What the world are you doing? But did you know when you lash out at someone, you're talking to them, but you're not really having a conversation. In fact, you know what you're doing when you're lashing out at someone? You're closing yourself off to them. You're closing yourself off. And many of us have closed ourselves off to God in all the ways we yell at him, in all the ways we dismiss him, in all the ways we ignore him. But he's saying when you go through trouble, open yourself up to God. You know why? Because he's the only one that can give you the wisdom you need to go through that trouble. It's a big deal. Some of you are experiencing trouble that's just beyond you. I mean, maybe it's economic, maybe it's relational, maybe it's parenting, I don't know. But you're, you're in the midst of it. And you don't know what to do. You know what the good news is? God does. And you can have a conversation with him. That's the right response. James tells us that the right response in trouble is humility. It's humility to humble ourselves. You know, when we yell at God, we get angry at God, we get angry at the world. What we're saying is, I'm better than what I'm being given. God should be treating me better. And what's that? That's pride, right? That's ego. What we should be doing is, you know, saying, God, I, I know you care about me, and I know there's a lot that needs to be fixed in me, and, and I'm going to humble myself before you. I, I'm just your slave, like James said. James didn't get mad at God that he died for his faith. James stayed faithful because he wasn't about being a big wig, brother of Jesus, bishop of Jerusalem. He was about being a slave of Jesus Christ. You can do anything you want with me. He even says it in James 1, 9 through 11, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in the high position. This means the person experiencing it, being in poverty of whatever kind, you're the ones that should take pride because you know you need God. But then it says the one who's rich, the one who has great circumstances, you're not experiencing trouble, you should take pride in your low position because you're going to pass away like a wild flower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the planet, blossoms, falls, and beauty is destroyed in the same way. Rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. The point is this. If you're looking for life to consist in the goodness of your circumstances, what a waste because that is soon gone. But if you understand God is your great reward and your great honor like James did, then it doesn't matter if you're in trouble or good times, you're going to experience it the same way. Do you see that? 
So we're supposed to respond in humility. And no one who's humble before God ever gets angry at God. And then he tells us one last one. If we're going to respond appropriately, then we have to respond, get this one, because this just doesn't sound right. We have to respond in love. Now, I mean, when someone's putting me in trouble, I'm going to put them in double trouble. Isn't that how you, I mean, come on. Am I the only person who's a jerk in this whole auditorium? Are we all about the same? Okay. Then it's like love's not the natural response, but love's the right response. And that's exactly what we're told here. Look at James 1.12. Blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. You're in trouble. You're experiencing full out. We've already seen this verse, but I want you to see a different part of it. Because when he stood the test, when you've gone through that refinement, you'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to all those who, what? Love. Love him. The only thing that makes me persevere through trouble, James tells us, is when my love for God is bigger than my desire to be out of trouble. If my desire to be out of trouble is bigger than my love for God, what happens when I'm being persecuted I'm going to throw God out and get comfort loves the motivation though it's not natural the great response to trouble is love and this is one of the reasons I want you to know that we've named our outreach to help those in trouble through human trafficking we've called it love runs because we think love is the right response to help alleviate the trouble in this world and in our lives. And by the way, there are a lot of people running in love runs with our ministry here, our Ridge Runners, who hate running. They hate it. One block, I hate it. One mile, I hate it. 25 miles, I despise this. But you know what keeps them running? Love for God and love for those they're trying to help. Love runs. So, when you see all the Love Runs journeys, uh, jerseys around Northridge Plymouth, Northridge Saline, Northridge Brighton, Northridge Grosseal, and, and I, listen to them, talk to them, and think about this. Love is the right motivation to go through trouble with because it allows us to be faithful to God. Think about joining that. The only true motivation for responding positively, even in the midst of trouble, is love. This is why James stayed true, because once he saw Jesus alive, he loved him more than anything, and it motivated him to live for him and to die for him. James understood the inescapable reality of trouble. James understood the positive results of trouble, and James understood the appropriate responses to trouble. And if we want to experience God's best in our lives... We need to follow his example.
I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't nothing to be afraid of. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life. Reach out to Jesus, hold on tight. He's been there before and he knows what it's like. And you'll find he's there. I know there's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. tears up in your eyes, but that ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. Reach out to Jesus, hold on tight. He's been there before and he knows what it's like, and you'll find he's there. Now people say maybe things will get better And people say maybe it won't be long And people say maybe you wake up tomorrow And it'll all be gone Well, I only know that maybe's just ain't enough When you need bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't nothing to be afraid of. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, that ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, reach out to Jesus. On tight. He's been there before and he knows what it's like, and you'll find he's there. It's inescapable, but it doesn't have to be destructive. In fact, because of the resurrection of Jesus, if you really have Jesus in you, trouble can go from destroying you to making you. But there's an essential foundation that we have to have. If we're really going to learn to live positively through such negative experiences, then we, like James, are going to have to establish the foundation in our life of faith. Faith is the foundation. Uh, James went from not believing in Jesus to believing him when he experienced him alive. And the truth is the same is what happened to me. 
Uh, I didn't get to stand at the tomb. I didn't get to talk to him in person. But I've experienced the power of living Jesus absolutely transform me from the inside out. And you can too. It takes faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You need to have faith. And when you do, it can transform every experience in life. How do you get it? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us how it begins. It says it's by grace that we're saved. I mean, we experience the profound impact of Jesus' forgiveness and new life through faith. It says it's not by works or we would boast about it. And then it tells us how we get it. It's the gift of God. You can't work yourself up to faith. You can't rationalize yourself to faith. You can't get to the place where you're big enough to understand all the God stuff, but, but God can put faith in you and give you faith, but you have to open yourself to it. And so before I finish this talk with just one last thought, I'm, I want to invite you into an opportunity of prayer. And I'm just going to ask you if you'd bow with me, honor the moment just for a minute. And those of you at our regional campuses, campuses, if you would bow with me, and those of you even watching online, just engage this moment in a word of prayer. And for those of you who are already followers of Jesus, I encourage you to, to express faith again in Jesus and evaluate how you've been responding to the trouble in your life and and let faith override the trouble instead of trouble overriding your faith. But for those of you who are here and you've just never even started, let this be your moment like James experienced when Jesus changes your life because you finally get faith and express it. Pray with me. Take my words in this prayer and make them your expression to God. Just quietly to him. Just say, Jesus, I, I'm opening myself to faith, to trust, to belief. I need you to reveal yourself even more to me, but I believe that you died on that cross for my sin and that you rose again to give me new life. And so I, in faith, confess my sin, receive your forgiveness, and claim new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed with me just before I share this last thought, I, I just really encourage you, let us know. We, we want to give you ideas for taking further steps in your relationship with God, but to, to get you the letter that we've written about next steps that you can take, we need to know you prayed with me or that you want it. And so if you just prayed with me or you've prayed with me before and you've not gotten it, all you have to do is take out your programs that we give you, and there's this easy-to-rip-out connection card, and fill it out, and on the bottom there's a circle you check that says that you just prayed with me to receive Jesus. And at all of our campuses, uh, you know, here at Plymouth, fill this out. And then when you leave the auditoriums, there are boxes. All you have to do is throw it in there, and we'll send you that information, and you can start taking next steps. If you're watching online, just hit the next step button right there on your tablet or computer, and we'll do the same for you. But there are a couple other things I'd really encourage you to do. The, the first is this Friday night here in Plymouth, I'm doing uh, Discover Northridge, and this is for all of our regional campuses as well. It's a one night you can kind of come here. We can be uh, one church in one location, and, 
And I teach about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to wake up to him and, and how we as a church are trying to help you to connect. And it's, a, it's not going to be long. It's going to be like no more than a couple hours. We give you dinner. And, and, but it's going to be a phenomenal opportunity for you to take another step. So I hope that you'd sign up for it. You go to guest services, go online, do it with the, the connection card I just shared with you. Love to see you this Friday night. And finally, if you want to talk to someone personally or have someone pray with you, when I dismiss in a minute... All you have to do is come down forward and our prayer team's down here. They'd be glad to get with you and spend some time with you. But here's how I want to end. Since faith is the essential foundation for experiencing everything James is going to be talking about, how do you get more faith? How do you get more faith? Look at Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing and hearing the message. And, and faith, that means, comes by hearing the word of God. I mean, the message is the word of God. And so I, I thought it'd be fun to lay out a challenge for you. You want more faith? You want to be able to engage life better? You want to be able to experience the risen Jesus more in your life? Then you need more faith. So that means you need to hear more of God's word. You need to get more into the message of Christ. And I, I thought this would be a very practical challenge. Why not start reading the book of James? It's really a short book, four chapters. We're going to, I'm going to give at least 10 talks in this series, but you can start hearing from God yourself by reading James. And maybe you want to read a couple of verses from James a day, or maybe you want to read the whole book every day. I don't know how you want to do it. However you want to do it, just get into it. And here's what I know will happen. God's word will make faith bigger in you, which will make Jesus more real to you, which will make life different for you. Because remember, living for Jesus is learning to live with trouble. And that takes faith. Let's do it together. So glad you were here. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.